Today's episode is brought to you by Find Mass Money, the Massachusetts Unclaimed Property Division. So last year, a friend told me to go to findmassmoney.com and search for my name. And I'll admit, it seemed like a scam. Did I really have unclaimed money just sitting out there? But then when I went to the site, I saw that it was legit. It turns out the state was holding refunds for me from Best Buy and from some doctor's office I had visited years ago. I had no idea that states hold unclaimed property from things like overpaid bills and forgotten bank accounts. One in 10 people actually have unclaimed money like this. In the next break, I'll share how much I got back from findmassmoney.com. All I'll say for now is that it paid for a nice dinner at the Cheesecake Factory and then some. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Hey everyone, I hope you've all been doing okay. We're back today with a bonus episode. It's a fun one that also has a larger purpose. So our next season of the podcast, Coming This Spring, is all about love and money. I've long been fascinated by the many ways money plays into dating and relationships. And it's clear I'm not the only one, because as soon as we started promoting this theme for the next season, I got notes from friends, people at work, listeners, and longtime readers of my Love Letters column. A lot of people were excited to share their stories and hear other people's stories. But let's be honest, money is a very hard thing to talk about, especially when there's a partner involved, which means I'm going to be asking people some uncomfortable questions over the course of the season. So it only seems fair that I start by asking some questions of myself. On today's episode, I'll be talking to someone who spends a lot of time at that awkward place where love and money intersect. Someone who's seen it all and has important lessons to share. My name's Bob Rice. I'm a financial advisor, and I've been doing this for 25 years now. Bob Rice is not just any financial advisor, though. He is my financial advisor. Well, our financial advisor, because he helps both me and my sister, Brett. We've been working together for 10 years I got a book advance for my first book and a friend told me about Bob and was like, you should talk to a financial advisor about like what to do with this money. And I was like, oh my God, I have this little extra money. And Bob was like, why don't you pay your credit card debt, you piece of shit? Like, it was like, I didn't have, I was like, you're going to have to manage my wealth now. And you were like, you are negative. So it was a relationship that started 10 years ago, but not one that benefited you financially in any way as like a money manager person. So Meredith came in and uh, we kind of had a heart to heart and realized that step one was to kind of just realize that she wasn't getting as much money as she thought she was um, and that taxes are a thing and that she should take that money and kind of pay off her debt and then start from a position of kind of what to do going forward. For this episode, I gave Bob permission to put my business out on the street. Okay, not all of it, but hopefully enough to give you a sense of how I think about money and to highlight some key themes we'll hit on this season. When we first met, and I don't know if you remember this, you were trying to get a sense of like, 
was I good with money? And maybe good and bad is not the you were you were like, how are you with money? And I remember you had something like three things like you had these questions to figure out. Are you the kind of person who knows what's in their bank account at any given moment? Do you remember this at all? Like sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of three budgets. There is no budget, which is where most people live. There's a reactive budget, which says, hey, you know what I spent last month? And is that you know more than I brought in or less than I brought in? And then there's a, re- a proactive budget, which is someone that can kind of say, hey, what am I going to spend next month? The reality is no one lives in the proactive budget land. Most people live in the no budget land. And our goal is to get someone to the reactive budget land. And so for you, what we're trying to do is kind of say, hey, Mary, like, you know, what comes in every month? What goes out every month? And what's left over? And I think that was something that really opened your eyes up to the idea of, hey, I should probably should look at my bank account every now and then and get a feel for what do I make? From what you've told me, people have stuff that they pay their bills with and they might have like a 401k or whatever, but then they have like a middle thing, which some might call savings. I don't know. (laughs) But like, I don't have a middle and I feel like it's like either some far off retirement thing that I know I'll never get to retire or whatever, but it's like there, or it's like immediately in my checking account, but I don't have a second thing. One of the things I had been scared about talking to you, but then did not wind up happening was that like, I was like, I thought you were going to be like, you're a piece of shit. You're not whatever. But I feel like you sort of just met me where I was. I think when we met, you had the long-term bucket that you were saving into. You had the short-term bucket that was kind of volatile um, and you didn't really have a medium-term bucket, which is that everything else fund. And so I think when we, when, you know, when someone thinks about their financial picture, it's how do we build all three buckets? If we have a dollar to save, how many cents go into each bucket? to help me, you know, plan for the future, but also plan for today and then plan for everything in between. The other weird thing about the relationship we might have, and maybe it isn't that weird, is that like after my mom died and she didn't, she left, listen, she left way more than a piano teacher, single mom, you would think she would leave, right? Probably not a lot in the scheme of like people who have a lot of money, but for us, it felt like a lot. Also, I basically came to you as a team, like with my sister as, and I wonder to what extent the people you deal with are singles, couples, siblings, like what's, is there a normal kind of client look? We like helping families. And so for you, your family is Brett. For other people, their family might be their kids or their parents or their spouses or their partner or whoever it might be. So when you think about the group of people we work with, we think about families as opposed to individuals. And, you know, you and Brett are very individual, but you're also sister wives in some ways. (laughs) Um, It's very rare that we have sisters that do calls together um, and share the way you both share. But at the same time, you know, in in my, I guess when I think of you two, I think of you as separate, but together. You two have always stayed combined in terms of your beliefs in life. And, and the reality is money is just a part of that. Like it's it's not the every part of it. But I think for both of you, you both don't value money on the scale of very important. You value it as a thing. And some clients, it's more important than a lot of things. It's not important to you guys. It never will be. But we love spending it. Yeah, but you don't. You, you don't think about it all the time. Like a lot of people think about it. They spend days thinking about it. They go to bed thinking about it. They wake up thinking about it. You two do not do that. I think that's because like... I don't I don't feel smart enough to like know how to th- about money to you know what I think about like I'll think about things anxious things all night but like I wouldn't even know where to begin about the money piece of it it's too overwhelming it would like break me when we lost my mom we spent money differently I think I was spending it more 
to make Brett happy. But Brett, who is spiritually very different than I am, um, started seeking answers about my mom's death. And do you want to tell a little bit what my concern was and sort of what you remember of that? Yeah, so we went to lunch together, the three of us. And that was the, I, that was the first time I think I met Brett in person. And Brett was actively seeing a psychic on a regular basis to find out where her mom was and what was going on. And also about her health and, you know, a general gaggle of things. And you were horrified. And you were so frustrated with her. And, you know, disappointed is not the right word, but you were just not happy with her at all. And so we kind of asked what the cost was. And I think it was like $215 a session or something like that. And... I was like, that's fun. like, that's, I'm like, I was worried it was like $5,000 a session. And I don't know where you came in on that. You were kind of like, uh, it's still not great, but I feel a little better. But you had this, this fear that she was spending tens of thousands of dollars on these psychics to get answers about what your mom was doing. Yeah. I just didn't want her to like spend whatever she had in her bank account. She, she used to say to me, like, I just want to know what mom's doing. Like, on a, on a daily basis. And I was like, it's not, if you believe in an afterlife and by all means go ahead. Like, I don't think it's like camp or from nine to 10, you like do bowling and from 10 to 11, I was like, I just kept saying, I think time would work differently if that's the case. I think I have a lot more baggage about coupledom partnering and money than I let myself admit. I mean, I know I have it. It just hasn't come up because I've never been in a position where somebody was like, let's combine bank accounts and live together, right? Like I've been so single and separate that I've never been confronted with the need for that choice. And really it's because my parents had a bad money situation and bad communication skills and could not afford their own divorce. When I look back at, at, being mad at my dad all the time about, you know, why wasn't he doing this and that after the divorce and he was late on child support. I'm like, it was unaffordable. Like he was paying a rent in New Jersey, paying child support to Maryland. My mother was covering a mortgage that was really meant for two people to cover. None of it was affordable. Like, and some people would be afraid to be alone, that they'd have to take that burden alone. And to me, it's frightening to combine because I've seen so many times the way you have to uncombine if it doesn't work. And also just resentment about spending or resentment about unemployment. or It's like when you're only worried about yourself, you only have yourself to blame. And I guess I wonder what you tell clients who might feel like I do. We've been working together for 10 years and you've never said those words about money and about marriage, about, about your parents you know, I've talked for length about you dating people. I've been trying to get you to date people for, for literally years. Um, and, you know, I've tried to refer you people and all sorts of fun stuff. And it's really interesting to hear you really share that your parents' influence on you had a significant impact on your, you know, your lack of interest in getting married. And it goes beyond that, right? Like, so it's the bad experiences, but also like... I'm Gen X, right? So I'm sure younger people have different perceptions of gender and who gets what and credit, but I know the numbers are still the same in terms of women making less. And like that stuff hasn't all gone away. So I feel like that combined with the parent stuff, but I do feel like there's still like whatever wave of feminism I was a part of. I'm still like, I can fry my own bacon and bring it home and put it in a pan or whatever that commercial used to say. But like, I still feel like 
that is something I owe to myself and to others. Um, I guess I'm wondering, like, we all, whether it's my baggage or anybody else's, we all come to the table with a lot of stuff in our brains about money that is like traumatic, or even if you have a lot of money, that can be a trauma too, I've learned. So when you're dealing with whether it's a single person or a coupled person, how do you get the vibes about how they feel about money? So it's really challenging because I think that it's a evolution out of revolution when it comes to figuring out how you're going to help someone get over their feelings around money. And it typically takes years. When I first meet with someone, you get a feel from the conversations, especially if, if they're single, you know, it's easier because it's that one dynamic. Let's work together over, you know, time and figure out how you react to money. React could be, there's market volatility. What do I do? React could be, I need to pay for this expense. How do we pay for it? We have a life event of some sort. And so I think that's the challenge of figuring out what that event is, how be, both spouses, if you are married or if you're single or, if, you know, whatever the case may be, how each person feels about that expense and then how to evaluate a solution that makes both people happy. Everybody brings shit into the relationship, right? Whether it be an ex or money or whatever it might be, you bring stuff into the relationship. And so one of the responsibilities I have is to help them give them both a safe space to, to express that stuff and then challenge each other to hear each other. But it's volatile, right? I have sometimes two-hour meetings and 80% is marriage counseling and 20% actually talks about money. We're talking about the negative stuff, which of course is only making me be like, no, no, I'll never do this. But but there's also like positive stuff, right? Like people come into money and or they want to make a life change and they might need guidance. Like, I don't want to only see it as horrible, right? Like they're like planning with someone I imagine can be fun. In general, you know, what I try to do is give people permission to do stuff. So what you find a lot of times is people have an inheritance, have a life event, and they're so taught that you can't spend that, that they refuse to. And so uh, an example would be my grandmother who passed away a few years ago. She, she won a $100,000 lotto ticket. And she's an old school Italian and she put it in the freezer for a month because she was afraid someone would find out and take and take it from her. And so, you know, and she was, I think, in the mid 80s at this point. So she finally called my aunt and said, I have a hundred thousand dollar lotto sitting in my freezer in a, in a plastic bag. And my aunt went over there and they cashed it. And so, you know, this is a woman that grew up in the depression area. It was very hard for her to even think about spending a dollar, let alone, you know, what she would get after taxes. So convinced her to, to rent this house for our family on the Cape and spent like $10,000, which again was like the most money she spent on anything in her whole life. She probably bought her house for $10,000 in the forties. And so, you know, one of the things that I find a lot of joy in is giving people permission to actually spend money and to show them and prove them through, you know, different softwares and things like that, that you're not going to run out of money or the likelihood of, of you running out of money is very, very small. So, you know what, like I'm a big fan of, of give it while you're alive, as opposed to when you're gone. We try to give people permission to do that on a regular basis. More of my conversation with Bob Rice after this short break. So I went to findmassmoney.com, found my name, and claimed my money. It was that simple. How much did I get? Drum roll, please. $147. Pretty good, right? I filled out the paperwork and then the state sent me a check and it was that easy. Find Mass Money is my state's unclaimed property division, but every state has one like it. 
After hitting up Massachusetts, I discovered that my family has money unclaimed in Maryland. So now I'm going for that too. If you live in Massachusetts, like me, you can find out what you're due at findmassmoney.com. Be sure to try your old addresses too. And if you've already done it once, definitely check again because more money comes in by the day. Some people are owed thousands and have no idea. Oh, and you can also search for friends and family. I searched Tom Brady's name for kicks. He is absolutely not my friend, but it appears he has money in the system. Tom, when you claim it, please consider donating it. Go to findmassmoney.com to see what's there for you. Now back to my conversation with Bob Rice. Sometimes I think that the greater similarity I see between people who couple up is is not religion or a bunch of other things. It is actually wealth background or lack thereof. That I I rarely have friends who veer wildly away from they tend to connect with people because they have a similar, oh, I know what it's like to worry about a bill, or I know what I don't know what it's like to worry about a bill. Is that what you see? Do you have clients that came to the table with like completely different financial backgrounds or not. A lot of people that come to me, come to me in their fifties or sixties. So it's been years of growth with their spouses. You know, most of them are not, were not wealthy when they met either one of them. And then they've, you know, kind of made their, their livings and, and built their wealth over time together. And that's where the dynamic is sometimes healthier because they've gone through the tough times together and they've built together and and they're usually more conservative with their assets, meaning they're spending. Whereas if you come in from two different relationships, one being, you know, more affluent from the beginning and one not, the person that was more affluent from the beginning at times isn't as aware of expenses and isn't as aware of spending and things like that and repercussions of spending money. And so that person might not be as aware of the limitations that the other spouse has. Is there a language you've learned to use or or like calming uh, questions you've learned to ask to remove blame, to make people not want to freak out with it. I mean, you, you're, there are couples I'm sure that are having like massive conflicts in your office. How do you diffuse that? Like, is there a certain language or tone of voice that you use to sort of therapize, even though you're not a therapist? I actually use the word like, let's, let's take a step back and, and hear from this person. Let's just both listen, see what they have to say, absorb it, and, and then we'll kind of react to it. I use the word safe space sometimes because I can tell one of the participants is getting a little aggressive with the other person and I can see them kind of going into a shell. And so um, I, I try to say things like safe space or let's give this person a voice so they have a chance to kind of share what's going on their side of the story. So the disclaimer on this, of course, is that you are working with people who have money that needs to be managed. With the exception of me in the beginning, where <laughs> I had negative monies and sometimes still have negative monies. But um, there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are not at a place where they would go to any kind of company that has wealth management in the name because they have no wealth to manage. But they're still having awkward conversations with significant others about money uh, or even with family about it. So for the people who wouldn't be able to show up here or wouldn't think to because they are 26 and figuring it out or 36 and figuring it out and not at a place where they would go to somebody like you. Are there a few questions or tips you might have for 
having a calm conversation, a first conversation about money with a significant other? Yeah, I think that the first step is just to talk, right? It's kind of to create a balance sheet, which says, here's what I have. You take all your assets, all your liabilities and put them on a piece of paper. And then you each look at each other's. And it's kind of like a show and tell. <laughs> um, like I have that meeting sometimes with people that are married and they don't know what each other have, which is mind blowing to me. And so the the problem is people don't have the the resources or just the the skill set to say, okay, like where do we start this conversation? And so the first thing is to kind of say, okay, there's two there's two major parts to a financial plan. One is what your what your net worth is, right? So all of your assets, my assets, your liabilities, and the other is just get a feel for what you spend. And that's the most challenging by far. Uh, the good news there's some great tools out there online now that you can utilize to do that, and you can just Google like you know free online budgeting tools and like mybudget.com and things like that. And they'll allow you to kind of say, okay, here's what, I mean, going back to our first conversation 10 years ago, is what do you take home? And a lot of people don't know that answer. They know what they make because they can see it on, you know, from their offer letter, but they don't know what actually is getting, gets into their bank account on a biweekly basis. So, um, so f- you know, step one and step two are those two checks the box, which is what do you have for assets minus liabilities and what do you have left over every month and what do you spend every month? And to start there, I think is a very healthy place. There's a book called Millionaire Next Door, and, and I read it when I was 22 years old and just started in the business. So it's, it's an old book. <laughs> so at least 25 years old, maybe longer. Um, and in the book, it talks about how the millionaire next door is not the millionaire you think, right? It's a person that drives an F1, F Ford F-150. Um, they don't make a bazillion dollars a year, and they just save. And so the, the easy answer is, um, and I would tell someone in this stage of life, is if you have debt, is don't put all your money towards your debt. Make sure you do some savings as well. So if you, know, if you have $100 a month to put somewhere, put half to debt and half to savings and start building your savings. And the, the school of thought is if you can save between 15 and 20% of your income into anything, whether it be your 401k, whether it be a savings account, whether it be an investment account, you'll be well, you'll be well off financially. And so the, the first step is, and they use this cheesy saying, say, pay yourself first. So when you get your income that comes in every month, if you pay yourself first, meaning you put some aside for your own benefit, that will grow and that'll turn into a lot of money. I mean, I've, I have a client that has millions of dollars and they never made more than $100,000 a year because they don't spend money. You start with $10, 10, you know, 10 bucks a week if you can't afford it and then go to 20 bucks a week and then go to $30 a week and just start saving something and, and you'll be amazed how that changes your feelings around money and how motivationally you feel like you're having little successes along the way. What do you tell people who feel shame, whether it be about paying for a psychic, having credit card debt? I think a lot about now the people who are walking around with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans and are dating, having to disclose that, yeah, they, they're doing their best, but also they're carrying with them a debt that seems, you know, not even like, I mean, maybe it's irresponsibility, but everybody seems to have secrets that they're afraid are going to be judged. So how do you like let go of some of that shame? So the unfortunate thing is there's no classes in schools to be better in finances, right? So if you go to school, you've get, you know, all these wonderful classes and, and kids just don't know what they're doing. And we started a few years back doing like a, a workshop for kids, for like college kids, our clients, college kids and high school kids, because they don't understand what credit card debt is. They don't understand what taxes are. Um, and there's no way to find that out unless you take like a finance class or you're in a school that offers that. And so it's not fair to judge those kids because they weren't taught it. 
And so for me, I just say, you know, it's part of life. Like, you know, we all make mistakes and we try to learn from them. It's not a mistake if you have student loans, right? But if you spent $30,000 in your credit card to buy a car, that's probably not ideal. So if it depends, I think, on the, the baggage you're bringing into it. Um, and there's healthy debt, which is student loans, mortgage, whatever it might be. And there's unhealthy debt, which is just living way beyond your means and not realizing you can't spend on the things you spend. And then that's just part of the, you know, the relationship management is, hey, I didn't understand what I was doing. I made these mistakes. I need to figure out how to change those. As a partnership, we need to figure out how we change them either together or how I work on my own to change those things and go from there. What did your grandma do with the rest of the money after the K-Pass? She'd left some money behind to her three kids. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a really funny moment, um, which, which actually brings me to an interesting part because one of the things people do really poorly with money is, is plan for it when, they leave, when, they're, when they're gone. And so um, one of the things, another grandma story, so we were sitting there in her house and she was, I think, 85, 86 at the time. She brought up a, a safety deposit box. And I said, well, where's the key? She's like, in the refrigerator. I'm like, and who knows that? She's like, I just told you. And I'm like, again, you're 85. Like, no one else knows that. So what we've tried to help people do, and this is something that, you know, relationships is really important, is to tell your spouse or your significant other or your kids what you want if something happens to you. So part of money is not just enjoying it while you're around, but making sure that it passes where you want it to go. And one of the struggles I think people have is to convey that properly because no one likes talking about their death, right? Getting someone into an estate plan is really hard, but getting them to say, hey, where are all my passwords? And, you know, did you write your own, you know, obituary? And, you know, all the stuff that's really important if someone passes um, is something that we have a lot of passion around to make sure that we can help our clients do that because we've been through it with our family and with other people where those notes aren't around. Like, I mean, if, I don't know if you remember your mom's situation, if there was, you know, there's a lot of work that happens afterwards. I do remember when my mom died, us trying to get into her accounts, and I had a pretty good feeling that her password would be a sting song. So I was like, okay, uh, don't stand so close to me. Like, it was like, is it police or is it sting? Is it like fields of gold, fields of gold? And uh, it very much felt like this, like, Da Vinci code of, you know, a sting retrospective. We did eventually find it. It was a sting song. But um, yeah, it's like we didn't talk about that stuff. She didn't want to. Someone recently passed in our family unexpectedly. So I have a lot more energy around this than I have in the last few years. And so what we're offering clients is a chance to not just like fill out the four pages and send them to us, but also do it on a Zoom. So we just started doing this about a month ago. And, um, and I've been talking to clients about, you know, if they want to do it or not. And I was talking to a client recently who said, you know, he loved the idea, but he was afraid he was going to cry the whole time <laughs> as he did it. Because it's kind of like your final goodbye as you're sitting here reading like, you know, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Do you, you know, what are your passwords? What do you want for your house? You know, do you want your kids to keep it? And so it's a very emotional thing. But the, the problem with ignoring it is it's reality, right? We all die. I think I would want mine to be like a murder mystery where like, I know I'm gone. But also once Brett told me that, you know, she's like, when I die, I want to be buried, but the coffin needs to be filled with lo mein. She like wanted to die with a food she loved, which is interesting because a totally separate friend who has been on this podcast told me once she wanted to die being buried with nachos. I don't know what that is. In a weird way, when I think about it, when I think about spending and saving, like 
you're my partner in it because when I wonder if I should do something, I call you and I say, should I do something? And you like help me figure it out. But like, I remember I needed to redo my bathroom. And I remember having this conversation with you about like, was I allowed to spend money to remodel a bathroom? And you were like, are you sure, sure, sure you don't have kids? Which is like such a personal question. But I, of course, loved it because I was like, no, I do not want kids. And you're like, oh, okay, then like, yeah, do your bathroom right now. And it was, I I don't know, it kind of is like a pretty intimate relationship to have with people. And I just wonder how quickly you realized in doing this job, like, oh, like, I'm kind of like another spouse or a prime, just when it comes to this of like, figuring out like when it's okay and when it's not okay. You know, I think that I definitely take some risks, but I speak with my heart and, you know, like asking you questions like, you know, if you're, if, if you're going to, if I'm going to tell you whether or not to do that bathroom, I need to know if you're going to have kids because that's an expense that is going to impact your ability to meet your other goals in life. And so I'd rather err on the, I'm asking the question because I know it's in your best interest rather than making you uncomfortable. And most of my clients are like family. What are the hardest things to talk to couples about, whether they're married or not? I think when there's a significant amount of spending from one spouse that doesn't, that hasn't made the money, I think that causes a lot of friction. And again, it's not male, female. It's just one spouse has a belief on I can spend whatever I want. And the other spouse has a, you know, a belief that typically that spouse is the one that made it and they have more passion around keeping it. Um, there's, there's stuff Right. And it's really challenging to kind of give both those spouses a voice because they each think they're right and they do. They each are right, you know, in their own ways. And so to try to navigate that space is really, really challenging. And what are some of the most fun things to talk to couples about, like, you know, in life? Just go out and enjoy your money. Like, I think there's so many clients of mine that have enough resources but refuse to spend it. So to prove to them, hey, you know what, you've saved all your life your kids are okay, go enjoy, go on trips, take your family away, gift to the charities you care about. You know, those conversations are really neat because you can show them like, hey, you're, you did it, right? You checked all the boxes, you got through, you know, all these years of working, go enjoy. And I think it's really challenging when people retire because they don't know how to. It's kind of like a relationship, you know, it's this new relationship with your life. And you, we work for 40 years, whatever the number is, and all of a sudden you're not working and it's confusion of, okay, now what? It's funny, and maybe this is something I can explore in the podcast, but more often than not, I'm seeing for much older friends that they can or there was a plan to retire. And one person was like, actually, that's just not in my personality. I'm very happy working and I still can. And then there's like resentment on one side of like, wait, but we were supposed to do this thing. And I'm not sure we're all supposed to retire. But I want to, I was thinking about like my grandfather, who was awesome, once said to me, you're so lucky you picked a job where you'll never have to retire. And that's sort of how I feel about it. Like if you're a writer, even if you're like writing a poem in your room, you're still writing. You know, another friend of mine said you picked a job where you always have homework. How terrible for you. And it's like, well, we all, you know, I I don't, I think I, at some point it would be nice to have more time or security to make the choice and just to like, you know, like sit around with Brett, like in the movie Beaches, which she always says, right. But like not, I don't know that I'd ever want to completely not work. So we've been together for 10 years. You've never brought up retirement once. Like that's just not on your radar where I have clients that are in there for five in my office for five minutes and all they're talking about is retirement. And so that's kind of the value I hope I bring in terms of just being able to, to meet someone's needs, right? Like you've, you've just not, that's not something that, that's a hot button for you. Thank you for helping me for so many years. 
and not judging me. And thank you for helping today. Mayor, thank you so much for trusting me the last 10 years. It's been really neat to getting to know you and Brett, and I just feel really lucky to be part of your lives. Am I your poorest client? Does that mean no, like, you're not. I don't think so. Really? You might be. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. If you have a story about love, dating, and relationships that touches on money in some way, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at loveletters at boston.com. That's loveletters at boston.com. Or online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.